Midnight Hunt kicks off the double feature that sees us returning to this fan-favourite plane. And whilst the promise of more werewolves and other denizens of the night is exciting, is there enough fresh ground to cover a third time around? And what do we hope to see as the full moon rises? Welcome to Magic the Flavouring, the Magic the Gathering podcast, where we talk about all things magic flavour design and lore. I'm your host, Andy Mann. Hello, this is Nathan Cancel. And it is Innistrad, baby! We are finally here. We're finally back to Innistrad. I mean, obviously, like, we've we've known that this has been coming for a while. And actually, this episode is coming out quite late in the day for, like, uh, how we usually do things. Usually, we kind of get a jump on it just as the set is about to drop. We usually do, like, our world-building episode or, like, our first of three that we usually do when we go back to a plane or or start a new one. This is a little bit later on because we've had a couple of weeks uh, break here and there. Um, But, yeah. I'm excited. I'm excited to talk about it fully because we always we, we rightly, I think, put it off a little bit so that we're not just talking about the new set all the time, and we kind of give the sets that are actually here a bit of breathing room. Um, but yeah, we can finally talk about werewolves. Werewolves, Nathan. Fucking werewolves. Aye, and in in all, in all colours across the spectrum. Uh, werewolves. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm more excited for this in a strad than I have because what's interesting is I, I, I was thinking about it right, and I was very um, I was in the Oh, they're just doing Eldrazi on Innistrad camp when it first came out. I felt the Eldrazi fatigue a little bit. And I don't think that's Innistrad's fault at all. I think Battle for Zendikar has been poster childhood as like the mistake kind of. of Is this of, what of, you're of talking design. about? Shadows over Innistrad? When yeah, because yeah. I th- I think that worked very, very, very well. And I've, I'm a big adv- advocate for the fact that they should have started with Shadows over Innistrad with the, what's going on? We don't know. And they go, oh, it's Eldrazi. And then we go back to Zendikar afterwards and go, yeah, look, the other right. two are going mental as well. We've talked about this before. And I kind of feel like that kind of undercut and undermines like the flavor of Shadows over Innistrad and Eldritch Moon because I think it worked really well as, as a closed like block. But again, that fatigue of the Eldrazi it kind of made me kind of check out a little bit from it and the original industry was just before kind of i was in the like i it's not that i didn't pay as much attention but i didn't pay I, well i mean I, I simply didn't pay as much attention as i do now <sighs> to sets of where i break everything down and look into every card and you know and then there's a bit more um it feels like i i treat sen- sets more sensitively that it's uh, with more sensitivity than i did back before so this sure, for me sure. is almost like the first like breath of okay back to back to original Innistrad and I'm glad it is because I feel like they've done the same it feels like they've done the same thing here if they've gone okay there is still a there's such a well of of lore and and style that we can kind of go into here so let's see if we can reinvigorate Innistrad back to kind of like its original roots Mm. um, which I feel like they've done and for me it's quite nice because it kind of renews the faith in a set that everyone's like oh I really like Innistrad and normally I'm like "Eh, yes it's all right whereas now I'm like oh I actually really like Innistrad (laughs) yeah i've got got a huge affinity for an estrad as well because um when you first introduced me to the game like with uh, return to ravnica obviously an estrad was the block before that so you had a bunch of Innistrad cards still very fresh in your mind that you were very keen to play with so obviously i kind of it was almost like i was playing a lot of Innistrad as well as return to ravnica at the same time and then um when I was stopped mooching off of other people's cards and other people's collections and I made the decision to like start buying my own and you know that took quite a while because you have a shit ton of cards and a massive collection so I never really felt like I ever needed to buy my own cards but it was around the time of Shadows over Innistrad and Eldritch Moon where I was like no I'm going to really invest in my own stock now like all that time later um so it seems that Innistrad has kind of been there for all the big pivotal moments of my development with Magic the Gathering. And just, yeah, just go back for a third time. I was kind of surprised. I'll be honest. I don't think I've said this before. I was kind of surprised when they announced that we were going to go back for a third time, like, now. Do you know what I mean? Like, it it sort of came out of 
nowhere for me when they first announced Midnight Hunt and Crimson Vow. I was like, really? Another Innistrad set? I thought I was convinced we'd be doing things like Phyrexia first and all that kind of thing, you know? Well, we've been convinced of Phyrexia for ages and they continue I mean, maybe to prove us wrong. That is the isn't it? Um, yeah. it, is been, it has been kind of wild watching the Midnight Hunt and Crimson Vow come out in spoilers. So we're still technically in spoiler season. The full card image gallery hasn't come out yet. The first few story articles have been here, um, but obviously we've got a good sense of the story and a good sense of the the kind of style of, of horror that they're doing. So um, we will be talking a little bit about the story today. So, so Sorry, we'll, we'll double back. This episode um, is going to be in place of our world-building episode. So whenever we go back to a new plane, we've endeavoured to do a world-building episode where we explain all the rules and regs of the world. We'll do a uh, like mechanical flavour uh breakdown of everything and so what we think works and don't work and then we do like our flavor picks episodes i think that's those are the kind of three episodes that we kind of try and rock around so we do kind of like hype and world building mechanics flavor picks um when we do worlds that were already established like how we did for zendikar it's kind of a moot point doing a world building episode because there's not enough time to go through absolutely everything if you want to hear a really slick world building episode for Innistrad as prep for Midnight Hunt go listen to the Vorthos cast, I know we say it all the time but they are really good at doing those incredibly detailed but very breakneck breakdowns of uh, world building what this episode is going to be is much like our Zendikar hype episode, is just us talking about how much we love or don't love the plane that we're on and what we are hyped or not hyped for this time around. And that will feed into a lot of the story beats that are kind of going around and what we hope to see and what we expect. I mean, we have now the the kind of hindsight of already knowing a lot of what we can expect from the set, whereas with Zendikar, we kind of did it when we were still a little bit unsure as to what we were going to see. Um, but sorry, my point was, before I just qualified all that, is that Innistrad is like the horror plane. And whilst other planes every time we've gone back there, I've always tried to shoot for a slightly different thing. Like Ravnica evolved very rapidly. Zendikar like, kind of flip-flopped back and forward between big ideas of what they wanted to do with Zendikar. Innistrad has always been fairly consistent, but it's always been really interesting to see how they've not only changed the style of horror, but even when they do do more generic kind of tropes and, and uh, signifies, they still keep it kind of fresh. Like the original Innistrad was very straight down the middle um, horror you got your vampires you got your werewolves you got your bump in the night ghosts and all that kind of thing and these are things that have always existed in magic but they really pushed the kind of grotesque gothic horror aspect and then when we went back for shadows and for eldritch moon it was um eldritch horror as the name would suggest so it's all like you know cosmic horror cthulhu mythos all that kind of thing kind of feeding in and and changing the plane which the eldrazi were obviously very good at but they really pushed it within Innistrad. and now this time around we're still doing gothic horror we're still doing hammer horror but they've really screwed into the the kind of folk horror aspects, I suppose, that's become quite popular of recent years. You know, I mean, it's been said a hundred times, films like The Wicker Man or films like Midsommar, which is a, a really sort of uh, modern take on this kind of folk horror thing from Ari Aster. Have you seen Midsommar? I have, yeah. I only watched it's... it for the first time about two or three weeks ago, despite the fact that Holly has been trying to get me to watch it for ages. Fucking love that film. It's a really good film. Also, Florence Pugh. Like, come on. It's Florence Pugh. I mean, <laughs> do you know what? I'm not bae. the biggest... Uh, I'm not actually the biggest Florence Pugh fanboy. I think it's because Holly is a massive Florence Pugh fan. And so I'm trying to be a little bit contrarian about it. Like, she's great. <laughs> but And she's great in that film. So I don't know why I'm so against it. But yeah, no, I, I refuse to be quite so simply over Florence Pugh. But uh, it is a fantastic yeah. film. Yeah. And the, everyone in it is amazing. Um, And so it is... It is incredible to see them do this setting again because like you know horror is horror is horror and they don't necessarily want to go down 
too much of like the like torture porn route, which is I guess would have been very easy to have just gone down. There's hints and bits with like iconography, but they I would be very surprised if we ever went to an Estrad and it was like saw Magic the Gathering. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, we had like things like Abattoir Ghoul the first time we went there, right? Where it had also this like this slasher f- flick kind of thing, mm-hmm. and where it felt a little bit like it could have lent into the Hills Have Eyes or the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that kind of horror, but that's a bit too modernized. Like, I feel like this is. And the, the biggest thing about Innistrad is always the, the fight of humanity against the horrors of the night. Mm-hmm. It's not about some, some. I mean, don't worry, you get cards like Village Cannibals, um, and there's a bit they, of like, you they know. They have hints of it, and there's on one. Human. There's a card in this set, which we'll talk about maybe in our Flavor Picks episode, that is just Flesh Taker. I mean, that is full Oh, of man, what an artwork. <laughs> yeah, Kev Walker artwork, right? Yeah, that's one of the best cards. But the yeah, set, they, yeah, they try not to lean into it too hard because then you start getting into... Um, it almost feels like that kind of horror, much like how the hand ringers and the kind of like, oh, television ruins children, that crowd are like, you know, it, it is vicious and it is like mean horror as opposed mm-hmm. to fantasy kind of bump in the night horror, which is a bit more kind of, um, you know, ritualistic, I suppose. But it is, it is a really almost subtle flavor to go for this kind of folk horror and one of the big signifiers this is something i'm massively hyped for and a really big fan of in magic when they do this because they've done this before is when they use the changing of a season to set the tone yes exactly it's winter there's a light dusting of snow everywhere and that for a horror set and it's a very very specific time of winter where it's just off the back of autumn so you still have a lot of pumpkins. You still have all of like the the oranges and all that kind of um, mm-hmm. aspect of it. You still have all the dead leaves and all the foliage and the kind of um, all the plants are still there. But yeah, the the chill is starting to creep in, which is where people are trying to fight against the night and you know have those rituals to stave off the night as it's going on. Um, and they did this before in uh, Ravnica Allegiance and Guilds of Ravnica, where the mm. autumnal setting again autumn there. I think this is, autumn is a very good. Um, visual season out of the four seasons because autumn is has a lot of interesting color that's not just you know green <laughs> you know it's got a lot going on and the aspects of you know uh, autumn is kind of associated a lot especially in the uk this isn't necessarily um uh, a trope anywhere else but we have like guy fawkes night or is it more commonly known now bonfire night so there's a lot mm-hmm. of like fire and like fireworks sort of aesthetics and i think around the world like this is the time of year where the bonfires start kind of coming out and all those kinds of things so it's visually amazing and you can play with things like rain and snow and dead trees and foliage. And it kind of has everything all together. And when they did it for Ravnica, it really switched it up from the more summery, bright aesthetic of Return to Ravnica. Because they said it was, it was summertime in Return. And now it's autumn in, um, in Guilds. And doing that for this set and really leaning into it, I think, has just given it that folk flavor without necessarily doing anything else. But they've still done everything else with it as well. Mm. Um, so I'm massively hyped for that. It looks different, but it still looks like Innistrad, which is amazing. Yeah. Well, it's like, I guess in real world, we're going into, you know, autumn time. We're going into Halloween time. And this is oh, kind they, of like... Oh, they did that, that on purpose, that for Halloween sure. This is, yeah, of course. This is the quarter four set for a purpose, like reason. Yeah. <laughs> and that idea of going from 
like the, the the changing of the seas and the darkening of the night and obviously within the story of uh, in the strad currently like the the, the day night cycles kind of in flux and the nights are getting longer and that's kind of really ominous kind of um feeling especially when you go in towards like the longer nights and the deeper deeper winter um it's a bit it's a bit more evocative when you're also doing it in real life um so i think it works quite nicely in the uh the, the pathetic fallacy um is very much appreciated mm. unless you're in the southern hemisphere where everything's getting warm in which case screw you i don't care like you know <laughs> it's, it's all about um specific circumstance right we do have listeners in the southern hemisphere we do apologize your your winters are, or your yeah your christmas is always so sunny and i'm always very jealous um let's talk let's talk a little bit about the story then so we are going to do probably story episodes we are definitely going to do a book club episode on a certain uh, story article that's already been released because i know you're very hyped up for it mm-hmm. but so where we left in astrad last time is we left it with emrakul being called by nahiri to an astrad to destroy it as uh, in revenge um, for Sorin not saving Zendikar from the Eldrazi in the way that Nahiri thought was appropriate. That was the big thing. It was Nahiri calling Emrakul to the plane to destroy it. Emrakul's presence warped the plane and turned everyone into tentacle monsters, and it was all cosmic horror and influence and cults, and uh, it ended up with a big, massive battle at Thraben between the Emrakul cultists and all the denizens of Innistrad that were affected by her touch versus pretty much everyone else because the humans and the vampires and the werewolves and everyone who wasn't affected by Emrakul's presence was like, huh, m- maybe we're not the scariest thing anymore. And they kind of clubbed together yeah. to go against Giant spaghetti monster in the sky. Um... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So that's where we left it off. A um, few kind of key character things were um, that the Gatewatch rocked up because we were still kind of in the Gatewatch era. Um, and uh, Tamio and Nissa Ravine uh, attempted to seal Emrakul away in Innistrad's moon. Um, Emrakul was sealed away in Innistrad's moon, but it was very quickly realized that that seemed to have been a voluntary act and not actually at the uh, powers of the Gatewatch, which is still a mystery that we'll see. Why would Emrakul seal themselves away in the moon? There are... Um, there are theories. Uh, Sorin was left trapped, uh, stuck in a wall of Markov Manor by Nahiri because they had a battle which ended up with Sorin's um, defeat, which doesn't happen very often. Sorin usually either comes out on parity or on top, so it was kind of nice to see Nahiri sort of get the upper hand there. Um, and we see that Olivia Voldurin stole Sorin's sword. Um, I only mentioned that plot line as something that we left on because we already know that that has changed because the next time we saw Sorin, he was in War of the Spark without a wall with his sword mm. back so who yeah. who the fuck knows what happened there i hope they address it i really do i think they i feel like they will because i'm pretty sure they here even said made a mention the last series i was like last i'm pretty sure i left you in a wall didn't i and I, I feel like that if you don't nod well that was in uh that was in the, the book that shall not be named right yeah quite okay um, never mind. <laughs> in, in terms of uh in terms of uh innistrad's other sort of defenses uh avacyn who was the archangel created by sorin who was the protector of the plane all the way throughout the first block and uh some of the shadows over innistrad um had been destroyed by sorin because emical's presence turned avacyn mad and all the angels decided that the humans were just as sinful as the demons, which didn't go very well for the humans of the plane. Um, the only angel that is now left, or at least the only angel that was left in the last uh, time we were there, was Sagada. All the other angels and flights of angels uh, succumbed to Michael's presence and were destroyed by the Cathars and the collective efforts of the rest of the plane. And essentially we left Innistrad in a state of being rebuilt. Uh, I think we were kind of worried at the time that it was just going to get the Zendikar treatment of just being utterly destroyed. Um, and then when it wasn't quite utterly destroyed, it was like, okay, but we can't really go back there anytime soon because there isn't really anything there anymore. Like, it's been absolutely fucked up. 
but they they're back and there seems to be some angelic presence again and there are certain angels that may or may not have cards that we know about and may or may not have uh, be around where we didn't necessarily think they were meant to be around but there is a definite shift in the humans of Innistrad and this is something that I think parallels the real world very well at least in certain western countries where the big thing about Innistrad was the Avicinian church the church of Avicin that was built around the archangel and was used and was a very sort of it was almost the most direct allegory for real-world Christianity that Wizards of the Coast have ever done. And you can't really get away with that because it is like a Germanic European setting with a church that uses white and robes and angels. Like, it's not going to be other than any other religion. And this, I'm going to say this as kind of like a off the top. Nothing we say is going to be in disparaging of any real-world religions. This is just how they are presented in the story of like uh, Innistrad. Um, but because the church itself got corrupted by Emrakul's presence and splintered off into different groups and some of them were for and against and, you know, some of them were forces for good and others were forces for greed and corruption ran rampant. The faith in the church, I mean, the Church of Avicen is is now disbanded. It's now the uh, Order of St. Traft is now the kind of righteous group led by Thalia. But the humans of the plains still need something to believe in and something to hold on to. And if it's not going to be the church than the older traditions and stuff that I'm ever going to very clumsily label as more paganistic religion, um, paganistic rituals and more like earthbound uh, rituals. Because I, I will say I don't know much about it. I think you do a, a bit more than I. Yeah, my mum's a pagan, so it's yeah, the kind of quite. thing that I grew up yeah, yeah. You, you yeah. slap me on the wrist if I like sort of <laughs> a bit too ham-fisted when I'm describing this. Um, but the humans of Innistrad seem to have gone that direction and have kind of a lot a lot of them not all of them have kind of shed the church as their kind of focus point for their faith and are now engaged with the warlocks of the plane which is a really interesting one and the set seems to be surrounding this kind of confrontation between werewolves and humans at something called the harvest tide festival which is where the nights have gotten longer on Innistrad and the days have gotten shorter because of Emrakul and the moon is kind of messing with the lunar cycle it's sending the werewolves on a frenzy, and they are starting to become a bit too powerful. And so the humans of uh, Kessig, especially, which is kind of like the werewolf-heavy um, territories of Innistrad, have turned to the more ritualistic and warlock-heavy uh, side of things to try and stave off the night. And so I think this is where, again, like this whole kind of aesthetic and this this visual really comes into play. Whereas before it was all churches and like Abyssinian collars, and there's still a bit of that in this set. Now it's all straw and fire and, you know, magic. I think that's, it, it, it's incredible how much they can change a plane's identity, still using things that are still very relevant in Magic the Gathering. Like none of these are new tropes, but for some reason it, it feels completely different. Um, mm. Yeah, it feels much more grounded. I feel like it was, it was almost um, a bit eye-rolly, a bit groany being like, Oh, of course, there's the church that keeps them safe. Whereas now it's like, no, when the chips are down, like you don't have this grand savior to kind of look after you. Like your world, your, your world protector only protected you because they accidentally, you know, what well, obviously Sorin didn't cause the vampire issue. Um, and obviously that's, that's going to be next set, but they created, there's an imbalance in, in, on the plane and you created this giant holy warrior that kind of to, to keep everything in check. So obviously the entirety of humanity is going to be kind of like bent to relying on it. So then when that gets sub subverted and Avacyn can't, can no longer tell bad from good and starts attacking everybody, it's like, oh, maybe we shouldn't have relied on this, you know, synthetic savior to kind of look after us. And that's not to say, say, for example, like Sigarda 
doesn't mean very well for the humans. And, mm. and but I feel like she represents because she was even like the furthest away from Avacyn in terms of story beats, in terms of like, yeah, we kind of yeah, I'm sure you're here to help and everything, but we're still going to do our own thing. I'm going to look after my own my own my own flight and everything. Like, yeah, that's all that's all well and good. We can be in partnership, right? And I like I like the fact that Sigarda's you know still around and kind of represents that um that more homely kind of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a bit a bit nice, and then this kind of like, oh, we we just devote we de- we devote ourselves to to this 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 new this new angel thing that can just kind of solve all our problems without taking any ownership of ourselves and kind of forgetting all of the old ways that kept us safe in the first place. Also, when is Innistrad ever not going to be in a state of flux? You know, <laughs> the first time we go there, like the nights, um, the the, the we had um. Uh, the issue with the so the the, the initial um, issue was all of the all of the uh, monsters are getting too powerful. We need to fight back, right? And then the Helvel broke open. Avacyn came out, and everything seemed to be fine. And then then then, then Emrakul gets back into the plane, and everything starts fluxing in that direction. And now that now Emrakul's fight, every Emrakul's gone. We're now she's stuck in the moon. So now the night cycles are all in flux. It's like when is Innistrad ever not just a little bit okay? Yeah, Can it just be humans, okay. The humans of the plane definitely never seem to get a break, do they? No, <laughs> no, everyone's up. Which fair enough. I mean, you've got you're surrounded by vampires and zombies and werewolves, and all you've got is your all you've got is the blessed sleep, which like nine times out of ten turns you into a like a, a geist. You know, like fair enough. It must be really shit. And like reading the couple, like couple, like the intros to a couple of the stories that have uh, come out already, like like humans on Innistrad really don't like being on Innistrad. No. So yeah, coming back and this, this like really grounded kind of human perspective. And having a bit more of a balance, even if the werewolves are kind of taking over, I think is better. And mm. also, werewolves, right? Like, oh yeah, man. They've been done dirty so many times over, and now it kind of feels like maybe, maybe we, maybe, maybe they're actually going to get their set where they get they get the fleshed out properly. The mechanic kind of gets sorted That's out a little cool, bit yeah. more. Yeah, like we see them across all of the colors. I mean, let's let's okay, let's let's go let's go into that then, um, because there are werewolves in every color now. You've got mm-hmm. black werewolves. Obviously, we've got the green and red werewolves. We've had a couple of the white werewolves, and we've even got blue. We've even got a blue stowaway that turns mm-hmm. into a um, into a werewolf. Um, now, does that affect as someone who really wants, obviously, to see a the Naya or a Jund, um legend to kind of mm-hmm. like hedge your deck? How do you feel about them kind of stretching into all colours and being become a bit more deciduous? I mean, I'm I'm sort of fine with it. I think because the very nature of a werewolf is that they are not just a wolf, right? They are there's the human side versus the lycanthrope side. And I think it, it makes perfect sense that you have them in different colours, especially on like the human side of the card. If you're a fisherman or a wizard or any of those other kind of, you know, through the spectrum classes that are associated with blue, like if you're like by the sea or if you're like a scientist or whatever else, and you get bit by a werewolf or you you contract lycanthropy, that doesn't stop you from being the person that you are it just it creates this this other balance this other thing going on inside you um so i think just in terms of flavor i absolutely adore it obviously the problem with diluting the the pool from a player mechanical point of view is that especially for a slightly underrepresented tribe you want your tribes to be in set colors just so you know you can always play those colors if you're playing commander right so if you're mm. if you've got a commander deck and you want to make sure everything's tight and you can really have the best of the best cards for sure it'd be really frustrating if your werewolf commander is red green but the best werewolf objectively is in white so i think there's the danger from the look of the werewolf cards that we've seen 
the one thing they've not changed really is the power level of each individual one. I think it's because if you have essentially two cards in one, you can't make either one too powerful. Otherwise, things just get a little bit nutty. Um, and what I mean, the worst of the worst is if both sides were absolutely nutter butters, then you've absolutely, you just busted it wide open. So I think from a from a flavor perspective, I I think it's absolutely right that werewolves are you know the colors that they are the the fact that they're in all colors um because yeah not every werewolf succumbs to or wants to succumb to the nature of the wolf side of them i suppose mm. so the the stowaway that you're talking about is um is suspicious stowaway and it's a human rogue werewolf so it's blue on one side but then it is green on the other when it's just the seafaring werewolf which is you know just creature werewolf and i think that makes absolute sense um the day-night mechanic is an interesting one. So the way that Wells used to work is that it would be flipped on its human side, and then if you didn't play any spells on your turn, it'd get flipped over. But then if the other person played two or more spells, it'd flip it back again. And you just never really felt in control of, of the werewolves that you have. Um, and certainly if someone wanted to stop you having a powerful werewolf in Commander, and you were playing in a four-player pod, three players have the chance to play two spells to then make all your wells much, much worse. <laughs> so it was never that good. Whereas now we have daybound and nightbound as a mechanic. And it's just, it's very similar, but at least if the state of the board is in nightbound, you can have your wells come in as werewolves and then, you know, haste them up and then go. So it, it does give it a lot more synergy and a lot more kind of consistency and a lot more flavor as well. So I feel that while they haven't necessarily fixed werewolves as a competitive tribe, in EDH, certainly, I think in limited, it's gonna they're gonna be very very powerful. I think a lot of them are actually geared towards limited play anyway. I think in commander, it is going to be still tricky, and unless you just basically do the, <laughs> I'm so sorry, tribal players, if you do the cop out of basically just going, well, all my changelings are werewolves, then I still think <laughs> werewolves Let, are gonna be a slight. If, if it's not transforming, it's not a fucking werewolf, right? If I see I a fucking Torian Mauler again. On the opposite side of the board in any red tribal deck. Piss off. <laughs> just get, give it a new artwork. Why is it always just the same uh, ball? Just, just a like, ball. Come on. <laughs> I'm, never, I'm never happy about changelings because if they're a blob, I don't like it. And if they're a thing, yeah. I'm still like, yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> Yeah, I guess they were um, a victim of their own. Of ne- it was the victim of their own necessity, right? Because they came out in a class slash um, creature type block. So yeah. it was kind of just a, ne- a necessary evil. Um, wow. And now I feel like, yeah, they just get a bad rap. Yeah. I mean, I think it's also interesting that, yeah, they, they was a, there was talk of um, Marrow wanted to um, errata all of the old werewolves. And apparently there was a big conversation. I think when they're finally left settled on it, it's like, it's not happening yet. But if you make enough noise about it, there's a good chance it might eventually happen. Oh, so uh, erratering all the older werewolves from previous yeah. sets that have daybound, nightbound. Well, they don't even exactly. need to. The only thing, I mean, errata is such a strong word for it. I mean, so I'm in favour of it, if nothing else, just to make werewolves consistent. But exactly, so, yeah. saying the word errata suggests that you're like physically changing the text on a card. Whereas I know it has the ability of nightbound, daybound, and then the reminder text because it's a new ability on the cards. So technically, yes, that's true. But the signifier of something having daybound, nightbound, these cards still have the sun and moon symbols in the top left hand of the card. Exactly. You could just give all werewolf cards that have the flip daybound, nightbound. Because there are werewolves Mm. in Magic that aren't flip cards or aren't double face cards. So they don't have to have it. But you could just say any card that has a moon or a crescent symbol has daybound, nightbound. And then that would also not affect the shadows over Innistrad Eldrazi werewolves that have the Emrakul Emrakul moon 
precisely. symbols, right? They yeah. could not have it, and then you balance it that way. So I don't well, think it would be that much of an issue. The line of rules text is clunky and set as reminder text for day band, night band anyway. The only difference is that it's um, if a player casts at least two spells or um, no spells during their own turn rather than other players being able to interact with. So you get agency because you get to control, okay, if I do this thing or don't do this thing on my turn, it's not like someone else can go, okay, cast two instants at your end step, haha, <laughs> lol, lol, lol. You know, yeah. like that that kind of thing. So you get that agency. I mean, I like the fact that day band, night band is a thing. I mean, I guess we're kind of also straying, we're kind of straying into mechanic territory. But from a flavor point of view, I like the fact that uh, because um, this, uh, the, the day-night cycle is a little more in flux. There is this idea of it locks in and it stays in for longer and this idea that nighttime will stick around for longer, whereas it felt very much in the original set that it does flip back and forth kind of willy-nilly and there wasn't as much longevity. So I kind mm. of like that idea because I think that's going to play more into, you know, there's a reason why Teferi's on the plane, you know, timey-wimey stuff has to happen. So yeah, for that's sure. quite good. That yeah, quite, quite, quite interesting. I mean, like, on, on that same um, note, one thing that I really like about Innistrad is that we're kind of going focusing now on the things that make it idiosyncratic. The fact that there is like a night and day cycle, kind of like Lorwyn and mm-hmm. and Shadowmoor, kind of this idea of good and bad sides. I like the fact that there's something that is um, specific to Innistrad and idiosyncratic, which is the moon and maybe subtly the Emrakul's influence. Because there's another one of where they've Eldrazi washed the set, right? Of where same with Zendikar, they went, yeah, we know you didn't like it, so that, here, here's your here's your plane back without the Eldrazi, specifically omitting the Eldrazi. <laughs> there was no Eldrazi here. What are you talking about? And there's the same kind of idea of here where we haven't really seen even the stories, they very rarely like kind of mention anything about it. It's almost like they're deliberately avoiding it getting muddied in. But there's a chance that maybe it's Emrakul that's kind of caused this issue, right? Or this mm-hmm. isn't just something big that's chance, naturally yeah. kind of out of place. Because I know that there's an idea of um, there is a big MacGuffin. There's the Celestis, which is this giant kind of like cog stone arch bit of like it kind of looks a bit like what Markov Manor looks after the Hiri kind of <laughs> ruins it all but it has this sure. sort of like called geometric kind of sundial kind of effects which all works around this idea of you know harvest times and, and working within seasons and the time of the year and this idea and it does feel a little bit kind of like skyclave they went yeah no it's, it's it's been here this whole time you just didn't realize but then at the same time how much of Innistrad have we really seen before but well, I feel like most I'm, of the time we focused on a lot of the little towns yeah. but that's what, that's what Innistrad is Innistrad is just a collection of little hamlets and territories right and mm. we've seen quite a lot of each of them I think the, the thing that I really like about Innistrad on that point is that they they do this with a lot of their big marquee planes where they have like Zendikar has a shit ton of like continents that we all always go to and they're hugely fleshed out and they seem almost too big to comprehend. I think as I've said it before, it's one of the reasons I never clicked with Zendikar because it was almost too big for my little pea brain to kind of wrap around. Same with Dominaria. Dominaria is famous for having a bajillion different territories that all have their own incredible lore because it had so much time to develop it all. Mm. And Innistrad is no different. There are so many different regions and territories and within those there's the like little conflicts like Kessig for example is the werewolf plane it's not the only uh, a werewolf area but it's not the only area where, with werewolves if you look at all the vampire houses like the fact that they you know a lot of them live in Steinsia or, or wherever else it, it, you know it fleshes out the plane and they do have those little regions but because it does seem smaller because you could just focus a whole story just in one little town without it feeling out of place whereas if you did that in a zendikar block you'd feel cheated because you're like well i want to see them go up to a skyclave or jump yeah where's where's tazim why 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 you only focus on this one little thing so i kind of feel like they've really hit that balance with innistrad where they were able to blend a lot of the regions so they don't just have like zombie locked areas or vampire locked areas if you want to do vampires you have to go here but they also make things feel fleshed out and feel like it is dangerous like 
do you want to go through the woods of Kessig? Are you sure that's what you want to do? Like the whole the whole Harvest Tide Festival, the the story is going to play out of the werewolves trying to break up the Harvest Tide Festival. You've seen it on the cards, we'll see it in the stories, where yeah, uh, Tovalar, who's the current um, head of the werewolf pack in Kessig, is going to try and disrupt the festival because they're they're pissed off that all these humans are having this festival in the middle of their territory and so it's it creates this sense of danger of like you have to live here because it's so small there's nowhere else to go mm. but you've just got to be really careful and know the expertise of your areas like trust your cathars to hunt the right monsters you know you want your werewolf hunters in kessig you want your you know um ghoul callers in a certain area of nefalia you know it's all that kind of thing so I think Innistrad really works that way because it, it doesn't just throw all these names around and you have no idea. If you just if you missed a whole like block of story, you would never know what that continent means or what it, its relevance is. Like it all feels like it's blended together whilst having its own identity. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely I I, I mean, it's very clear I fucking love Innistrad. Um I'm a bit basic. <laughs> I like my like Mahara tropes. I could very easily play a card game that is just in a strat, if I'm honest with you. Okay. I think it's also really nice to see like um um obviously like returning characters. I feel like it's a bit of a focus on Gisa this time. Like I mm-hmm. I guess we'll get Giralf like in Crimson Vale maybe because I I don't I feel like they would have we would have seen more of him already I otherwise. I didn't think about that. I think you might be right. Yeah. I mean, I did. I am just scrying through the. I'm um, scrying. I am just going through the card image gallery. We're going to try and not talk too much about um, the individual cards just yet because I'm like always. I'm always a little bit itchy about leaks that I don't know are a leak, and I'm a big believer in letting people spoil their own cards. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, but we have seen um, other characters that kind of revolve around the Geese and Drolf, um storyline on their cards, which is kind of cool. So I would be surprised actually, if we don't see Jerolf, I, I don't hold out much hope for Jerolf as we've known him. This is my prediction for seeing Jerolf. If we do see him, we've seen Gisa, we've seen other characters. Where is Jerolf? If we don't see him in this spoiler season, we do see him in the next set. I, I think he will be different. Well, yeah, there's a couple of people that we've seen development. For. Again, we'll talk about this when we get to like um, we do our flavor picks. I feel like it. There's there's so many legends. There's something I kind of want to kind of have a bone to pick with Wizards of where I don't mind the acceleration of product because that's fine. It's stop putting twenty fucking legends in every set because I want to play with all of them. And it's not like oh you've got all of these different cards you can put into your pre-existing decks. It's like no, there's like twenty new potential decks as well. Like everyone's really cool. They've got their own individual little story. Like people that have only had flavor text once or twice again characters. And it's just it's, it's too much. It's too much. But at the same time, I actually really like the fact that we're getting some of these uh, characters fleshed out. And it's good to see Gissa um quote unquote living her best life. It's what <laughs> I think she's doing. Because she looks fucking joyous in all of her artwork so um again it's nice to see the same characters kind of surviving all of these ridiculous apocalypses and everything mm-hmm. that's going on like i know that Audric's still around um we haven't actually seen thalia yet but again this two this is probably you do two uh Innistrad sets with a lot of like household names is if you don't see them in the first set you kind of got to assume they're going to be in the second one and you've got that, to space them out between them that's the thing of doing a plane which has already had two incredibly popular blocks and characters that have kind of been brought in or fleshed out or become fan favorites. I mean, you know, look at um, look at the werewolf uh, hunters. Um, oh, um, uh, Helena and Elena. Thank you. Um, oh my god, what a horrible blank. Um, 
like they were they were flavor text characters that became that became fan favorites that not only did they get web fiction they also got their own cards in commander legends and i you know i would be uh, I'd, i think we would have seen them by now if they were going to be in this i feel like they'd be uh, in this one right i feel yeah. like you'd have them be you'd, I, I feel like they could have done this big um because i feel like tovalar's got a card but he doesn't feel like the big werewolf legend right but then i don't know who else you'd give it to well and then... may, or maybe maybe commander decks that maybe that's where we'll see that. Oh, okay yeah actually that's a really good point yeah, yeah also like sorry my point is is that you know though they were fan favorites that became characters because of how popular they were and so if you have a popular set with popular flavor text characters that even get their own things ramnikas have the same thing with flavor text mm. characters getting cards then not only have you got narrative relevant characters having to get cards and then new characters they want to bring in but also all ones that were meant to be throwaway that they've had to bring in as well so it's it kind of i think this is a whole different issue maybe this is something we'll do a whole episode on i want to throw out a big philosophical idea that maybe the perpetuation of commander or the ease of which magic seems to have really bowed down to commander as a format is because actually it's very easy for them to make legendary creatures because there's so much love for individual characters as mm. opposed to them having to constantly make up new ones. Yeah. They have a whole back catalogue of people screaming for a Runo Stromkirk card. Do you know what I mean? Like it's... Don't even get me started. That's my <laughs> that's my that's my big one. But it's fine. We'll wait we've got to wait a couple of months for that. It's gonna happen. Fucking better happen. So there we go. And I, I kind of feel like it's it, it's kind of a back and forth. The more mm. legendary creatures they print because people want them, the more people go, well, if you've done one for them, why can't you do one for this person? Right. And like, oh, well, we will then. You know, it just kind of goes back and forth. Um, but that's a whole different issue, I think. Mm. I just, I mean, looking through the card gallery as it sits now, there's also some really beautiful callbacks to classic Innistrad cards. Like, we know we have a Delver of Secrets with a completely different form and flavour from the previous one. We have cards like Triskaidekaphile, which is a callback <laughs> to Triskaidekaphobia from Shadows yeah. Over Innistrad. You know, Champion of the Perish is the Biobox promo. Champion of the Parish is the white version of that card from, you know, a previous set. But it doesn't feel like it's siphoning off the fanboy, you know sort of wishes and whims of previous sets it feels like there is just a genuine love for this plane and it really permeates through the set um yeah i love yeah, it yeah very cool i mean obviously um there are still zombies in the set they've kind of got their own little spin we'll talk about the mechanics ep- um, episode a bit more because i think mm-hmm. they've had a very clever way of doing that um vampires obviously take a back seat but are still very present still in the set yeah still in the set um again i'll be interested to see if since we see vampires in this set there will still be some werewolves in the next set as well because obviously the two sets are supposed to be able to play together like the double features are supposed to allow them to play together mm-hmm. um but there's also some just really really cool like um i feel like they've done a very good job of making each color feel quite um well-rounded and balanced um mm-hmm. like there's lots of really strong effects across all of the um across all the colors and again i i just like i like things i like the fact that we still managed to find some tropes that we we hadn't done before which mm. is uh, which is interesting because i didn't think i thought that we'd run like kind of the well had run dry as it were but still we're looking at certain things like you know the the demon in the mirror and that kind of trait like uh, there was there are a few in there that i'm like okay cool we still have the pop knowledge kind of thing but now we also know in Australia well enough that it kind of becomes its own popular like culture thing especially within the magic community like there's just a very specific feel to Innistrad that I feel like you can't do in any other sets and it's kind of become its own entity and it's quite nice to see that evolve um I hope they're not just doing another 
Like, it doesn't. This doesn't feel like another the- uh, return to Theros block, right? This doesn't feel no. like. Oh, I guess we have to go back, and I guess we kind of have to cobble it together. It felt like they went back and they went. Oh, yeah, there's all this other stuff that we can still be doing with this. There's all these it different feels flavors. Like it's been thing. And I think you could absolutely, if you were to take the three Innistrad sets as they are, even now, this set isn't even finished being spoiled. I know this is maybe jumping the gun, sort of say, but you could play each individual one and be like, that is a fully fleshed out Innistrad block in what it's trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. Whereas you're right. Theros Beyond Death, as much as it was great to go back to Theros, I mean, it's got some really cool aesthetics from it and some really like nicely pushed ideas in terms of maybe this is something they, they could have done in the original set if they had had the kind of art direction that back then that they have now. The set on its own felt more like a DLC to original Theros, whereas this feels like its own game. Yeah. You know, this feels like it is the third installment of Innistrad, at least so far, which is, I think, really cool. I mean, I, I speak a lot of love for Shadows and for um, Eldritch Moon, it, it wasn't the most universally lauded of the sets, but I think that's because people had such an affinity for at least the first two sets of the previous block. I think Avacyn Restored people were a little bit unsure about, right? Yeah. The Dark Ascension and, and um, the original Innistrad were so beloved that you were never going to be able to beat it. I feel like you needed to take a dip before coming back, and the set was thankfully well-loved enough that you could forgive it being Eldrazi-fied and Angela, mm. and, and, Angela Angelicized? And, what's the word? <laughs> Angela, whatever well, they got rid of the angels. <laughs> well, it's, it's like Avacyn Restore when when they came in, it was all like, oh, fucking oh, kill all the monsters. Every every yeah, everything's good. And yeah, it was a really shit. Like no one really liked the set very much. So yeah, I feel like you could you could get away with it. And if you get away with having a couple of sets that fell f- a little flatter, but still everyone loved the, the set and coming back to kind of true to form is as you say, like it's like it's like coming home. It's like coming home after a long trip. Um. Mm. So yeah, it's really it's really nice to nice to be back. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about Warlocks just for a second. Because I kind of feel, as much as we've been talking about how the werewolves have kind of been playing with their colour identity a lot in this set, Warlocks have done the same. And the only reason I think it's worth noting down is because Warlocks, they've been doing this push recently with all of the the kind of wizardy classes of trying to pair them off into colours, right? So like we have like druids are the green ones, the warlocks are the black ones. We have shamans, are the red wizards are the blue and then clerics are the white ones. And that's kind of how they've been trying to break it down. And they really leaned into it with sets like, uh, with like Strixhaven, but they've immediately seemed to have reneged on that idea. And they've got warlocks in all different kinds of colors. So you've got them in green, for example, in this set. Mm. And I wonder, it makes a lot of sense story wise. So the, the harvest tide festival that is kind of forms the, the focus of this particular story in this block is the festival that the warlocks of Kessig have put together for the inhabitants. And so it makes sense that the kind of hopeful paganistic, you know, natural against the nights, you know, against the kind of almost unnatural, like shortening of the day and lengthening of the nighttime because the moon's messing up with everything. It makes sense for, the warlocks not to be exclusively black you know it does make sense for them to be in green and in white and all that kind of thing Mm. it's just i just find it interesting how that on the plane where there are literal demons that people can make literal deals with the warlocks who in fantasy genre are the magic class that gain their power through making deals and packs with demons and devils (laughs) are not in black (laughs) or at least not exclusively in black I just thought it was a kind of a wild turnaround that narratively it makes sense, but actually if you pull back and just look at it as a trope, it's a very bold choice. Well, yeah, this is where I feel like they kind of um, they they 
class themselves into a corner because witches in real world aren't i mean as much as in tr- in tropes they're considered to be you know all cackly eating children paint them green mm. kind of thing um like witches uh, they, they deliberately didn't want to put that as the class type because it kind of is it's a derogatory term for some people of certain faiths and it kind of like it, it, it again has that deli- like almost um instinctive negative connotation Whereas I feel like this is like the warlock plane. I feel like they almost like set the groundwork for it in the same way. There's a bunch of peasants in this set as well. Similar idea. Like Innistrad's definitely the kind of set that works towards this more homely kind of um, less cliche class typing mm-hmm. of where it's interesting, for example, that Gisa's not a warlock because she's a black mage. But it's like, but yeah, she's a necromancer. Most necromancers have to use a bit more, you know, high, I don't want to say highbrow, but a little bit more arcane magic rather than, you know, taking magic from the earth. I mean, I guess they're, the corpses come out of the earth that's you know that's not the point but whereas i feel like <laughs> yeah that kind of style of magic that kind of almost ley liney kind of magic is less druidic and a little bit more warlocky and i feel like it's almost like they open the door a little bit to go well actually let's be a bit more flexible you can set it in a in a in somewhere like Strixhaven where you're setting each different each different um each different school into having a specific class because that's kind of how they're training their students right to be that specific class of mage Whereas mm. in Innistrad, you don't have that class system so set in stone. So it's a, they're able to be a little bit more flexible. And obviously D&D did the same thing of where they went, well, fuck it. Anyone could be anything. Have a blue tiefling. <laughs> like, does, does it matter? And I think that's fine. I think that's a little bit more grokable. I think that's less, um, I feel like it feels less weird than having every single red mage is a shaman. And you're like, well, my wizard deck just got infinitely worse. Or, mm. okay, every single blue is I mean I don't know what else you do for blue anyway I feel like wizard's kind of the most generic and blue probably should have got something different other than wizard but they're too locked in now whereas all of the other tribes kind of I guess it's also warlock out of all of them is the least trod right we've had plenty of shamans we've had plenty of druids plenty of clerics whereas warlock feels like it's had the least amount of room to kind of breathe and kind of play around with so it's going to be interesting to see what they do with it it doesn't feel out of place here at all which is no it's really nice I think it speaks to what we were talking about earlier where how like the humans of Innistrad have had to try and find faith in new um, sort of institution or a new yeah. system it, it's almost as if the the color isn't necessarily where they're pulling their magic from it's more the role that they're playing within that society so like the fact that they are the white and green a lot of the a lot of the time is because the humans of the plane white and green is kind of classically that communal hopeful like uh cultivated sense of you know community mm. whereas you know so the, for the for the humans of the plane if that's what they're using the warlocks for then the warlocks fill that green white role for the people of Innistrad. Um, yeah, it's, it was just kind of a weird and interesting little meta spin on on the color pie that I I feel mm. like some sets they really try to lean into it, and then other ones they they almost pull it apart in very different interesting ways. I mean, that's mm. exactly how magic is sustained itself because it, it does do that and it is self aware, or at yeah. least it tricks people like you and me into thinking it's self aware. We <laughs> talk about it; it's all accidental, and, and they're like, "Yes, that was deliberate. Yes, 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 we did that all." Yeah, yes, yeah. and it just then it just seems like it was always meant to be. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I think one last thing I want to mention is that we get a lot more of the sea side of Innistrad, and I'm kind of interested to see if we will maybe lean into that later in Crimson Val, because Runo is specifically more of like Nathalia side of things, and hopefully we get to see some more like deep sea horror kind of things. Yeah, so got... he worships the god of the sea. Yeah. yeah, and we've got a legend, a blue legend that represents. Um, I can't remember exactly what the the phrase that they say for the title is. One second. Uh, 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 disciple of the drowned there we go for example like and and you do have um the black uh the black blue kind of like spell um siphon insight where there's a couple of pirates in the artwork there now there aren't any pirates in 
Midnight, Midnight Hunt as far as I can see yet. Um, but it'd be interesting to see some Innistradi kind of pirates kind of move towards that seaside. So I like this idea of we don't just see the towns and the um, and the forests because that's kind of what this 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 conflict for this set's about, right? It's kind of the humans versus the werewolves and the fact that the knight's encroaching. I'd like to see when we move to Crimson Vow a little bit more of like, okay, yeah, cool, it's going to be vampire wedding. But then what else can they do with it? And they could probably maybe lean into more of like the demon side, a bit more of like the sea kind of side and the depths of the ocean and the yeah, maybe tone. Bruno fa- uh, factors in that would be quite nice to see because a lot yeah. of the vampires live on the cliff sides and do have that kind of um, exactly affinity. I I sort of feel like in in a lot of different um like RPGs and a lot of different games and things like Vampire the Masquerade for example, if anyone knows that RPG system. That is part of a multiverse of, or I guess it's not a multiverse, it's a universe of different systems that focus on like different horror tropes. So, uh, vampire is obviously vampires. There is a werewolf version. There's like a one where you're like, you play as ghosts, and there's a system for that. Now, I know there's one where it's like the sea, and it is sort of dark depths horrors, a little bit sort of cosmic horror and stuff. And I, I sort of feel like whenever I talk to people about horror tropes or in any kind of media, the sea and what lurks in the sea and kind of leading a little bit into eldritch horror is always the most terrifying and Fuck the most yeah. kind of like we don't really want to go into that because it is actually a bit too much and like oh okay because it, it's almost like space but for horror so yeah. well, it's yeah. like thalassophobia or whatever right the the fear of the depths and there's that game that people play of where they're like a, a, a deep sea mariner like explore sure. yeah fuck that game yeah, I would um, play that. <laughs> yeah and like there's one thing they didn't really focus on i mean i guess it's because ixalan was very bright and bubbly right because they kind of did the dark side being like the vampires and that was kind of the bit that brought the kind of the the, the darkness to the set whereas the pirates were all kind of like a bit more hey we're the fun kind of who are kind of ones whereas we don't really see a lot of like the shipwrecky kind of the bad sides like you know like the last two uh, last two films of pirates of the caribbean where it's all about ghosts and all all the shipwreck kobe kind of places like i'd be interested to see a little bit of that in the next sex i feel like they're hinting at it here but because there's there's only so much you can fit i think i said this um a couple weeks ago where there's so much in Innistrad if you want to go back and go, right, let's do another deep dive on the plane now that we don't have to worry about the Eldritch side of it. We don't have to worry about the Eldrazi kind of influence. Um, and they probably realise there's too much. Can we split it into two sets? And immediately they went, yeah, oh God, we've got so much. We can definitely fit it into two sets. So I feel like there's enough little hints in here of what we're going to see in the second set. And I feel like in the second set, there's going to be enough little hints of the stuff that we still feel in this kind of having residual effect as well. I mean, it's still like 100 cards to spoil. So who knows what else is in the oh, yeah, set? Who knows? Yeah, I mean, this is, again, I, th- I think we've kind of hit just about in time to do this kind of an episode where we're still sort of speculating about who we could and can't see and, and what the kind of tropes are going to be. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I just, there is nothing in this set which I'm annoyed about that everything is is seems flavorfully on point mm. there's enough callbacks to all the sets they're still hitting all the beats i've seen some people maybe say that this set isn't quite as um like classically scary in some of its imagery which i don't necessarily agree with i think that's kind of the flesh flesh is it flesh carver i figured to go and go and have a look at go and have a look at that card it's like oh flesh, flesh taker. taker yeah that's not okay <laughs> it's, he stares yeah, at it's not okay it's not the okay. card the card that i saw where i was like oh that gives me shadows over and strive flashbacks is curse of surveillance um, which is the, uh, I'm going to butcher the surname, I'm so sorry, it's uh, I- Igor Kiriluk, um, and it's a hand with a bunch of eyeballs in it, and it is fucking vile. <laughs> mm. That's a nice little throwback, actually, to be fair. I think that's one of the yeah. only like images that has that kind of, yeah, as you say, Eldritch Moon kind of feel. Um, yeah, I mean, again, there's plenty of more of, of the set to go. I feel like, like it's, it's hard to redo the classic horror when you kind of get your typical, again, things, Abattoir Ghoul is one I always go back to, because I always feel like, man, that's just, he's still got enough sens- sentience to just butcher up human beings. So like mm-hmm. things like Vintage Cannibals, I don't necessarily know if we're going to get have that as much. Like I feel like the horror is a little bit more overt. 
saying that again we still probably have plenty of space for some more deep cuts um as it were plus um again like once you know the mystery of a set kind of like that's the, the whole point of horror right is once you start to know it and understand it it stops being so scary it's like the fear of the unknown kind of thing whereas i feel like everything's a bit more known so they kind of have to make it more a terrifier of, of like the survival sure. aspect i don't even necessarily think that, that that take was particularly true it's just something i did see a couple of times through and i think maybe it's just because the last set was so horror whereas this is now just like we are very used to seeing things like vampires and werewolves and whatever mm. else and i think this is now just more about the the visual aesthetics of of what they're trying to shoot for which is that you know ritualistic aspect rather than um church aspect yeah maybe that's a big thing maybe for some people when they think of horror and and horror tropes those kind of more christian church iconography aspects do play a big part of things i mean and also coming off the back of the last set avacyn and all the angels becoming corrupted by emrakul and all the artworks which showed like avacyn with her wings dripping in blood with Mm. her you know black moon spear and just all that kind of stuff it was just it was quite shocking actually a lot of it yeah um the the uh flip avacyn the archangel avacyn uh into the red side the white and uh, red flip card purifier i think yeah that's it that is one of the most incredibly like shocking cards really that's had like kind of a double face treatment i think because a lot of they always try and tell a story with the double face cards and often it's very very effective but that is one of those ones where i'm like wow they really captured the essence of that set with that one and it was you know it was quite a full-on thing to see so i think maybe it's just because this is more like oh it's you know it's halloween and there's pumpkins and it's you know it's a bonfire like people think it's a little more like kind of costume shop spooky as opposed to actually terrifying yeah there's um, less psychological horror there's less yeah. like that visceral kind of like oh god kind of horror it's more like but yeah, I'm still monsters. Very, very here for it like, oh absolutely yeah, yeah no, absolutely again we've still got 100 cards and another set to go so it's not the last of um i mean industry has got plenty still to go for it hell yeah Cool. Well, I think that'll do it for this episode. Uh, we will be continuing on with a bit, a bit more of a structured episode next time where we talk through the mechanics of this set once everything has been spoiled. Uh, then we will do our Flavor Picks episode as per, and then we will probably be doing a couple of uh, narrative uh, episodes as well, because mm-hmm. by that point, all of the stories should be spoiled. So we'll probably do a story breakdown, and then maybe even an MTG book club on a specific story episode. So a lot of Innistrad to come. I'm very excited for it. Um, I want to say thank you very much for bearing with us over the past few weeks. I know we've kind of been a bit more sporadic. Uh, as we've obviously said a couple of times now, our sort of work schedules don't always work towards certain things. Um, I've had quite a time this week at work. Um, so it was nice to kind of get to sit down and record this with you. Um, but yeah, guys, what are you hyped for for Innistrad that you've not yet seen? What have you seen from Innistrad Midnight Hunt that you're absolutely stoked for? What do you want to see coming in Crimson Vow that hasn't been spoiled yet for Midnight Hunt? And uh, yeah, what do you think of the new werewolf mechanic? Because I kind of have seen all different takes on it. Um, let us know via our Twitter, at MTFlavoring. Emails go to mtflavoring at gmail.com. My personal Twitter is at AndyManFace. Nathan's, yours is... At the Fox in the Moon. And yeah, I hope everyone is very well out there. Um, I'm about to go on a long weekend uh, out and about going to many different pubs. I'm going for a stag do, which is, uh, to our American friends, is a bachelor party. That was the worst American accent I've ever done in my life. I've trained, did, I trained as an actor, did you know? <laughs> um, a, 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 once upon a time, yeah, I guess. Uh, <laughs> oh my gosh, I do apologise. A bachelor party. Um, what's, and, the th- yeah. what's the woman one? Because I've only just realised, of course, we call it different Bachelorette things. Bachelorette party. Oh, good job, Nathan. Well done. Yeah. 
Fantastic. It's a Hindu in the UK. I yeah. don't know if it's the same anywhere else. Um, and yeah, so I'm I'm a little bit nervous to be going out to multiple places. Like everyone is double vaccinated and very sort of COVID safe, and we'll be complying with all of the rules and regs of of where the UK is now. But yeah, it'll be the first time where I'll be out and about doing like a elongated thing, as opposed to just going down the pub with friends who I've been around for for the past like two years. So interesting mm. it'll be interesting i'll be my mask will be stapled to my yeah, face say, just don't lick anybody's faces and you should be uh, fine pushing the straw up underneath it for like sipping my beers through a straw or something <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah all right well all that remains for me to say is thank you so much for listening this has been magic the flavoring we'll see you soon <laughs>